Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is an industry update, a deep dive into the wirehouses and regional firms. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page of our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. In my last industry update, we discussed the landscape of the wealth management industry as a whole and the vast array of options and opportunities for advisors of all shapes and sizes. Because there was so much interest in that episode and questions from many of our listeners, I thought I'd do some follow-up episodes on specific models. That is to share some inside baseball with you. So today, I'd like to start with the traditional brokerage space and answer some of the top questions we hear from advisors, including, what are the wirehouses and regional firms doing? What kind of transition packages are they offering? How actively are they recruiting? What are the primary differences between them? And how likely are these firms to offer an independent option? For brevity's sake, I'm lumping the wirehouses and regionals into one category today, but the truth is they're very different from each other. Let's start with the regional firms. With smaller footprints, many fewer advisors, and less layers of management, regional firms like RBC, Raymond James, Stiefel Nicholas, and Ameriprise, to name a few, appeal to an advisor who may like certain aspects of independence, but views it, independence that is, as a bridge too far. These folks want the turnkey, all-under-one-roof aspect of a wirehouse combined with the smaller footprint, flexibility, and control of independence. The regional firms can be the ideal middle ground for more and more advisors, and that's why they're crushing it in the race for top talent. Transition deals at regional firms vary greatly from firm to firm, but generally speaking, RBC and Ameriprise are at the higher end with total deals of 300% or so, and Raymond James at the lower end, 180 to 200% all in. My disclaimer, when I talk about deal constructs for different firms, please bear in mind that I'm sharing a guesstimate, the actual structure will always depend upon things like individual market, advisor's business mix, production, and assets. And these deals are always subject to change. Today's regional firms are not your father's regionals. For the most part, they've leveled the playing field with the wirehouses in terms of technology, infrastructure, talent, platform, and everything else. The wirehouses are the wealth management industry's best-known brands, with world-class platforms and a solid training ground. And one of the most attractive features of these mega firms is their retire-in-place programs, which are ways for a senior advisor to retire and monetize his life's work while passing the book to a next-gen inheritor. 
but there are some downsides to them and some implications worth being aware of. And the downside is that while there are great ways for a senior advisor to monetize his life's work in place without having to make a move, they can be onerous for the next-gen inheritor. And in fact, it's often the next-gen inheritor that we hear from that says, my firm's retire in place program is great for my senior advisor, but it ties me to my firm for the next seven to 10 years at a time where I'll have little control over the changes the firm chooses to make. So I better be darn sure. I better be as sure as my senior advisor that this is the right firm for me before I sign on. The wirehouses are more selectively recruiting these days. In fact, Merrill has all but taken themselves out of the game It's a mystery to us how sustainable their strategy is, but for now, they seem to be focusing their efforts on attracting younger and salaried advisors. This raises the question for many top folks, is it a sign that the firm will inch closer to a salary bonus model for all advisors? While I don't believe that in my professional lifetime and likely your professional lifetime, Merrill will go straight salary bonus. It does raise the question that it's no secret that the bank, Bank of America specifically, feels that brokers or wealth advisors are overpaid, and they'd love to cut pay if they could. And while I don't believe they're going to make a wholesale change to comp and go salary bonus, I do think that over time, it leaves the possibility for them continuing to cut comp and advisors losing more control. At least that's what we hear from Merrill advisors we talk to on a regular basis. One other thing to mention is that Merrill just transitioned its entire support network of subject matter experts to salary as well. And this is infuriating a lot of the advisors that rely on these folks most. Despite the fact that UBS and Morgan pulled out of the protocol several years ago, both are very active recruiters at the top of the advisor food chain. They've scored some of the industry's most productive teams in the past couple of years and report that their pipelines are chock full of top talent. While there's long been questions about UBS's commitment to wealth management in the U.S., frustrations from their advisor ranks about cost-cutting and a consistently low stock price, it appears, at least for now, that the firm is heavily in it that is committed to wealth management. Building the boutique of the wirehouses with approximately 6,000 advisors and a real focus on the ultra high net worth space. We think though that Morgan has made the strongest commitment to wealth management because the division represents more than 50% of the firm's bottom line and the E-Trade acquisition positions them as a behemoth. That is a $3 trillion firm with state-of-the-art digital banking capabilities, a way to connect with younger and self-directed investors, and perhaps most importantly, become the leader in workplace wealth. How Morgan capitalizes on this acquisition and makes it a positive for all of their advisors remains to be seen. With respect to the deals or the transition packages that UBS and Morgan are paying, UBS is offering a unique construct for their transition deals, a total deal of around 225% plus deferred comp reimbursement with much of it in the form of salary. And actually a lot of advisors like the guaranteed aspect of that deal, even though it's a little less in total comp or total deal than some of their competitors. 
The Morgan deal, by comparison, is around 300% all in, with 150% of it in cash up front. Shifting to Wells. Despite a really rough period as a result of very bad press related to their banking channel and a lot of advisor attrition, Wells Fargo seems to be on an upswing for now in terms of recruiting. They've had some meaningful successes and for the first time in my memory are offering very aggressive transition deals, paying the most amount of upfront money in the 200% range and a deal that is about 300% or so all in. It's important to note that advisors who see themselves wanting independence at some point down the road may flock to firms like Wells Fargo, Raymond James, and Ameriprise. All three of these offer multiple models under one roof, different ways in which to associate with the firms. From employee of their private client group, to independent broker-dealer, or to the RIA channel. The notion of getting paid a handsome recruiting deal to move from one employee-based firm to another and then sliding into independence later on can be an attractive career strategy and something that actually drives a lot of advisors to these three firms. I want to cover a question we hear a lot. Do we think that the wirehouses will launch an independent option? While wirehouses have long refused to acknowledge the momentum toward independence, often dismissing any breakaway losses as one-offs or anomalies, the trend is undeniable, and nobody is denying it anymore. Over the past decade, even the biggest naysayers have found it hard to rebuff the validity of the exodus as they watch so many multi-billion dollar teams leave the brokerage world to launch their own independent firms. We certainly think that the biggest firms must acknowledge that the independent space is indeed valid and worthy of not only their attention, but also of their participation. And it makes sense. Here's why. It's a great way to stave off advisor attrition and keep top talent in-house. It's better for clients because it allows advisors more choice and to offer a more customized service model. It acknowledges changing advisor sentiment and provides a pathway to better align with these changes. And independence is certainly a reality that's not going away anytime soon. But, and it's a big but, the biggest issue for the wirehouses is trading in their high-margin businesses for the much less profitable independent one. But if the wirehouses were to launch an independent model, what might it look like? And that's a very big if. An independent arm within a wirehouse is one that we would call, or the industry might call, captive independence. It's not necessarily something entirely new. Raymond James and Wells have been offering an independent broker-dealer option or a captive independence option for years. The positive is the option to go independent while remaining with the same firm certainly has benefits. For instance, it's surely the path of least resistance for advisors looking for more freedom and flexibility combined with the guardrails of a big-name firm they already know. But the end result is likely not as independent as an advisor might think. And ultimately, the value of an independent business 
in a captive independence model will be far less than an independent business that is not captive to a broker dealer. So in this captive model of independence, an advisor would be required to use his firm's platform and technology and to operate under the corporate ADV. Unlike the RIA space, there would be limitations on the ability to customize technology and market oneself without limitation. Also, unlike their RIA counterparts who can shop the street for products and services, advisors in this more captive model of independence would not have access to the whole of market. I want to be clear about what I mean by that. An RIA, for example, when I say has the ability to shop the street, that advisor can shop alone, for example, on behalf of a client to a multitude or a consortium of banks and create competition for price and service on behalf of the client, thus being able to offer the client the best possible solution. An advisor at a traditional brokerage firm as an employee or as a captive independence doesn't have that ability. And from a financial perspective, the differences can be significant. The more limitations placed on a business, the less value it will actually have should an advisor seek to sell his or her practice at the end of the day. In any case, when it comes to optionality, it's never been a better time to be a financial advisor. As Cheryl Penny, CEO of Dynasty Financials Partners, shared recently on a special episode of this podcast, it's the Advisor's Super Bowl, and indeed it is. I'll be talking more about the landscape in an upcoming episode in which we'll focus on one of the hottest categories today, boutique firms, specifically First Republic Wealth Management and Rockefeller Capital Management. I thank you for listening, and I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by cell these days especially at 973-476-8578. And always by email, mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And finally, a special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.